I'm thinking that I need to take anxiety medication before I host these because that countdown never ceases to get my heart rate up. But uh, I'm here with Biliana, Lily. I want to say doctor, but uh, we'll get to that. And uh, for anybody listening, like, I mean, I've been trying to get Biliana to record with me for it's. I said a year earlier, but it's for sure been probably a year and a half. And what's fascinating about that in this year and a half, a year and a half ago, I started at the University of Colorado Boulder studying political science. Uh, and but I met, I met Biliana uh, through a good friend uh, online before I had studied political science, but I was just really interested in some of the technological stuff that Biliana talks about, because you guys know I was building computers when I was 11, so it had been 2000. And that was the first time that I had done anything with wireless networks, broadband. Uh, so, I've, so I've always been a tinkerer. And what what uh, the kind of tinkering that you research, Biliana, is so fascinating to me, uh, especially because it considers, um, and I'm going to oversimplify this for now, but uh, state actors, non-state actors, and this new Wild West, if you will, uh, of warfare that exists online, on the internet, uh, using digital means. And so, I mean, Biliana, your, your background is obviously extensive. And I mean, I know I've had some guests on my, on this podcast that have studied in different parts of the world, but also speak multiple languages. I, I admire the fact that you speak multiple languages, but just giving everyone kind of a small frame, and then I'm sure the conversation will uh, ex expand on the frame here. But I mean, you, you did your uh, undergrad in international politics and history. That was at Jacobs University in Germany. Uh, you did your MA in international affairs in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, you, you did a, another master's in Russian and East European studies at the University of Oxford in London or the UK. And then when I met you, I think you were wrapping up your PhD at uh, Rand's graduate school in uh, policy analysis and cybersecurity. And then I think when I was like, Biliana, when are we recording? Uh, was when you <laughs> was when you put your book out, which my camera may not be flipping around, but it's called uh, Russian Information Warfare Assault on Democracies in the Cyber Wild West, um, which does a great job of uh, recapping your PhD thesis and shows the length that you went to provide the international community with a legitimate baseline to have uh, conversations about Russian information warfare, um, which I'm sure bleeds into the conversation in ways that uh, will soon have your name on it in the future. So I know you as uh, like a practitioner, uh, as a, a consultant, as a leader, uh, and then as an academic. But maybe to start our conversation uh, t take us back as far as you'd like to, but like, where did you start and how, how did you get to, you know, where the place that led us to this conversation today? 
Christopher, thank you for this great introduction. And I'm really glad to be here and finally be talking to you. And I am so sorry that it took us so long. Like, I don't know myself sometimes. Like, how exactly did I get here? <laughs> like, it wasn't really a clearly defined path. But I would say, so I grew up in Bulgaria. And already in high school, I was a very active child. School was never enough, and I did all sorts of extracurricular activities. I was painting, I was a member of UNESCO, I was a member of the Red Cross, I was a part of a paramedic team that would go abroad and represent Bulgaria for the Red Cross. I was working with handicapped children and orphans. I was also working with drug addicted people, and I went to a number of conferences. This is all through high school. I still okay. had a lot of free time, and this is high school. <laughs> <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> I'm still trying to get my stuff together. All right. But this is high school. So, okay. This is amazing though. When I was 18 and I was thinking what I wanted, I wanted to be an architect, but I come from a poor background and my parents couldn't pay for the classes, the private lessons that I needed to get into the architecture school. But it was cheaper for me to study for this, uh, for the SAT and the TOEFL, which were the English uh, language exams required to go abroad. It was cheaper for me to study for them on my own and then take the, the exams and apply for scholarships and study abroad than it was to study in Bulgaria. Interesting. So that's what happened. So I basically studied for those exams on my own. I asked my parents to pay for the fees for the, for the exams. I took the exams. I applied for universities abroad. I got scholarships. And the rest is kind of how I started. Um, that's how I st- first started studying abroad. And Jeez. then... This is just the beginning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess um, I wasn't sure what exactly I wanted to do. So I tried a lot of things at first. At Jakobs, you mentioned it in Germany. It was an incredible university. We had people from over 70 countries there on a small campus. And we wow. all got to know each other. There were people from the States, from Africa, from Asia, Latin America. I started learning dancing for the first time. I was actually okay. a professional oriental dancer for a while, too. I was also <laughs> investment club I, I did MUN like all of those different activities I found sure. you a chapter of Amnesty International I remember we invited Jivan Dalai Lama, Lama to come and speak like I was all over the place okay but I think the things that really the thing that really focused me or the experience that really showed me what I wanted to do was one summer I went to Kosovo and it was again a very random application a friend of mine came and said Bilina, there's the summer school in Kosovo and there are different classes it's all paid for would you be interested in applying and I said sure it sounds interesting let's try it and I applied and I got accepted and I took a class with an international lawyer his name was Curtis Dubler who at okay. the time was Saddam Hussein's lawyer and wow. <laughs> fascinating and so an American guy defending Saddam Hussein this wow. was 2006 and he taught me international humanitarian law for two months. And I remember we would go around Kosovo and see what the, the effects of the war, for, for the audience that doesn't remember, it's totally normal. We had so many wars afterwards. In sure. 1999, the Serbs bombed Kosovo. There was a, there was discussion about the Kosovo genocide. Basically, for a long time, the two, the two um, well, now Kosovo is a country, but the two ethnic groups were really... Um, very much adversaries with each other and they were in conflict and this resulted in finally an actual war against Kosovo between Kosovo and Serbia in 2019 NATO intervened there's like a NATO 
afterwards there was a NATO presence there, forces from different countries supporting Kosovo. So when I studied there in 2006, the country was still pretty much in ruins. You had wow. schools weren't working properly. Um, the, the, the healthcare system wasn't working properly. Every other day we had um, literally uh, blackouts because the electricity grid wasn't really working well because it was still impacted by the bombings um, a few years ago. And the whole country was still like, hasn't recovered. So people couldn't have their normal lives. They couldn't live normally still because of, of a war that happened six years before wow. I visited. So okay. I saw that and I was like, okay, this is really important. This is what I want to do. I want to make sure that we keep peace. And whatever disagreements we have between nations, we don't resolve them with military force. We resolve them, sure. which of course is a very lofty idea and like not easy to handle, obviously not easy to resolve. And it's, it's like almost like one of those naive ideas that you have as, as a child, you want to keep world peace, which of course <laughs> never really but, happened. But, but I think that, I think you had earned your stripes though. So by that <laughs> time, I mean, cause we're talking like this, this is your, uh, this is when you were studying international affairs, right? Is that, right. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you told us what you were doing in high school. So it sounds like you, but it sounds like you had a natural tendency to contemplate some of these harder to solve challenges, honestly, right? Or like some. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bulgaria wasn't a happy country. Economic depressions. A lot of people, it was, we were just coming out of communism when I was born. And okay. the country was still figuring out, are we with the East, are we with the West? There were a lot of um, Soviet allegiances and communist allegiances still in the country. And people were very confused. They weren't used to living in a democracy. So this whole idea of an open competitive market, just it, it really was slow to come by and to, to be accepted by the people of my country. And I would say that's why we had one or two economic depressions in the 90s, depending on exactly how you want to measure them. There were times when people couldn't buy bread because there was just still shortage. Um, we had, yeah, we went through a lot of hardships and I was trying to figure out, okay, how do we improve this? How do we yeah. live better given our legacies? And that's why I went with working with handicapped people and, um, and orphans and drug addicted people. I wanted to see why are those, those problems in society still existing and what are the structures that we have to fix them? And sure. yeah, from there it was international relations and then Kosovo. And then on the basis of that, I was like, okay, I want to do conflict resolution. And that's why I okay. went to Geneva because the United Nations is there. Like one of the, wow. headqu the headquarters is in um, New York, but then the conference yeah. on environment, a lot of the discussions are still happening in Geneva. So that's sure. why First Masters was there. And I worked at the UN for a while for the Bulgarian diplomatic mission. Okay. I worked at a think tank on small and semi weapons. That's why, if you want to talk about Victor Boot, we can talk about him. I think okay. that we should not have released him. <laughs> okay. But that's my opinion. Like, the guy has way too many connections. He should have stayed in prison. Sure. Um, yeah. So, I was at GUN. I love my experience there. I learned so much about how foreign policy is done and who are the major players. Okay. But then I realized I wanted to focus more on Russia because everyone could be an expert. Like there were a lot of experts at UN that would switch every few months on a different topic. And I wanted to be able to authoritatively speak about something that I have years of experience in and not just switch yeah. topics. 
And uh, that's why I said, okay, I'm going to do a second master's in Russian and East European studies, the economies of transition, and focus on our region. Wow. And Russian was easy for me to learn because it's similar to Bulgarian. And I already had like, um, I wrote a paper when I was in Geneva about nuclear terrorism. And at the time, it was a really big discussion about nuclear weapons um, would fall in the hands of terrorists and they can blow up entire cities. And that's a pretty scary concept. Sure. And yeah, and I wanted to figure out, okay, how realistic is this? Really? Can this happen? And the two countries that were constantly identified as potentially countries from where nuclear, from where terrorists can obtain nuclear weapons and even create a dirty bomb for another um, nuclear device were Pakistan and Russia. And I thought, okay, okay, Russia has the second or first, depending on one of the largest arsenals of nuclear weapons. I want to learn about that. And I wrote a paper. It got picked up by a Russian think tank. And little did I know that they were very close to the Russian government. And I was okay. still a very young student. What did I know really about foreign policy and adversaries? Yeah, they so, picked yeah, it up. They picked it up. They invited <laughs> me to go to Russia. And all of a sudden, I find myself in a room with the people that are negotiating the START treaties. And wow. they asked me to present my paper. I met Stroll Talbot, Rose Gjordemuller. She was Rose was undersecretary of NATO for disarmament. She's right now at Stanford. Amazing lady. Stroll okay. Talbot was the director of Brookings. He was the secretary of state during Clinton. And wow. like those people were in the room. And on the Russian side, you had their equivalents. And yeah. from there, I kind of started to develop good connections with the Russians, still maintaining my well, still maintaining my my academic objectivity as much as I could. And then when sure. I went to, to Oxford, I studied missile defense because I wanted to understand why are the Russians so opposed to missile defense in Europe? Wow. Going to intercept only a few of their intercontinental ballistic missiles and they have huge arsenals. Why do they, why are they so afraid of it? So that's the first book. Fascinating. And then from there, I jumped to the US and I did my PhD at RAND and um, focused on cybersecurity because of 2016 and done the hacks of the US elections. Of course. Yeah. So fascinating though. And then just the way that you describe your interest and how that, I don't know how you took advantage of that academically. Um, and then cybersecurity, obviously like 2016 catalyzed a lot of things, at least, um, in the public discourse, right? But so like you wrote this book, and again, uh, I mentioned part of the title, but Russian Information Warfare, Assault on Democracies in the Cyber Wild West. So when you got to RAND, you already knew that you were going to interrogate the kind of like cyber warfare apparatus of Russia or like, what was your thinking? That's a great question. And I would afterwards love to ask you about your thinking and your decision to, to, to get to where you are right now and exactly sure. why. Technologists are prepared. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I honestly was thinking when I came to RAN, I came in 2016, actually, um, October, like September 2016, just a few months before the elections, actually, in the hack that uh, we started to learn about. Um, and I wanted to write about the BRICS countries. You remember uh, okay. Russia, China, um, Brazil, um, South Africa, and India. I remember so the BRICS. Um, organization and they're supposedly challenging the global geopolitical order and i wanted to understand how are these states cooperating with each other and how exactly is this affecting the global order so sure. that was i think what i wanted to focus on one of the topics 
another one was the weaponization of space. I was fascinated by how space will become the next domain of warfare, exactly what, what would satellite's role be. So it touched upon technology, but I wasn't really, this, those were my two major topics. I wasn't sure exactly which I wanted to pursue. But then when, when we had the 2016 elections, I was really impressed, or first shocked, by how little the media understood Russian, Russia's behavior and also our own experts. We yeah. heard so many times the word unprecedented to, when, when experts and the media were explaining why the Russia is behaving in, why the Russians are behaving in this way and what they did. And yeah, hacking league operations weren't typical, but the other activities that they, they had initiated, like they have done these, in other, these activities in other countries. So this wasn't sure. really something new. We just haven't put it together and we haven't seen it against GUS before to that extent. Okay. So when I saw it, I thought, hey, the Russians are behaving based on their playbook. In 2011, they wrote about information warfare and what it means. And it's a lot of theory, but we saw it actually applied in practice. And I thought, this unites so much of what I know from before. Like, I've studied about Russian foreign policy. I can read the official documents in Russian. I know about their nuclear posture. I know about their threat perceptions. They always mm. say the U.S. NATO encroachment, the West in general, is um, eroding our own governance. They're criticizing us, and we are a great power. We are on par with the U.S. and the other nations. And democracy is as equally corrupt as our own vision of governance. And sure. through basically the hack, they showed that, yeah, the Hillary Clinton campaign had a lot of issues. Bernie Sanders was pushed out of the election. And sure. Hillary Clinton didn't know about the, the questions of the debates, the, de the presidential debates in advance. Like, those weren't really positive features. And there was nothing fake. Well, some there, was some, there were some fake elements in the documents that they released. But a lot of the documents... They obtained them for the GNC hack, the Democratic National Committee hack, and John Podesta's emails, yeah. and they released them. They showed actual issues in with the presidential campaign. So sure. I think that's kind of what really fired me up. I saw the elections, how we responded to it, and I thought, given I have studied about Russia and its behavior for years, I could apply some of those lessons to cyberspace and start learning about cyberspace. And I saw it more of... Cyberspace is an extension of Russia's already existing strategy and foreign policy doctrine rather than mm. a new element. It's You can learn a lot about and predict their behavior to a certain extent based on what you know about their threat perceptions, history, and foreign policy objectives in general. Yeah, and it's fascinating that you're translating it into the technology. Like, that's the best way I could put it, right? Because, like, I've listened to... Uh, you know, maybe other academics, uh, you know, that have a similar background to you, uh, but they're still on the softer kind of social science analysis, right? Whereas like you took some of these uh, social sciences and I'm sure some of the harder edge stuff, but then you combine it with computer systems. And uh, so it's really, really fascinating. I wanted to ask you something and then you'll have to frame the question to me that you want to ask after I ask you another question. But so what is, do you think that like, like the general public has kind of run away and like assumed that Russia has this all powerful cyber capability or like, what are your thoughts about how this information 
shifts as it hits public discourse. And what what is your opinion now that we've kind of, I mean, watched Russia engage in warfare over the last, uh, you know, 10 months? Like, how are you seeing the cyber elements playing out? Is it what you expected? Great question. Um, let me start a little bit and then you let me know if I'm answering it. So we look at cyberspace, the Russians call it information space. And when we talk about the information space, or I'll use cyberspace for our audience in the US, there are cyber attacks, which could be, uh, we can categorize them using the CIA triad, like a confidentiality, integrity, availability attacks, like different types of attacks with different effects. And the other thing is strategic messaging campaigns. Some mm. people call them influence operations, information operations, disinformation campaigns. I tend to use a term that the Russian military scholarship uses, and it's strategic messaging campaigns. Because basically okay. those are campaigns that include um, strategic communication on a certain topic that may or may not contain fake elements, but it has been launched strategically by a government and it's intentional and it aims to have malicious effects on a particular target audience or effects that will benefit the, the, the aggressor or the country that sends the particular message. So you can call it whatever you want, but it's like the disinformation slash strategic messaging campaigns and it's the cyber attacks. So on the disinformation slash strategic messaging campaign, I am shocked by how much, how many Americans are buying into these narratives. Sure. I um even my land landlord here, a lot of them are people that, that are immigrants, but not only Russian immigrants. Um my landlord is Russian. She has been living in the States for over forty years. And okay. still every time I go and pay my rent to her and I open her door, she has the Russian state sponsored media channels on the TV. <laughs> and I made the mistake of telling her once, I am going to take my COVID vaccine today and she started telling me how that was a um COVID was fake and it was created by, by please, this is totally disinformation, by the U.S. Yep. government to, to, to make us sick so we cannot work and to ruin our economy, which like, I don't even know how this makes sense. Sure. Even if you're an evil government to, and you're creating this, you don't want to kill your own people or to such an extent disable your own people that they cannot work in your own economy. Like, she, she didn't even reason for that, but... She's sure. still a very smart woman, but she comes to me with those narratives, and I'm like, can we think through this? Does this actually make sense logically? But sure. those are the types of narratives that she hears for Russian state TV channels. And she right. believes them because she's, and in her heart, she's still Russian and believes the Russian government. But there yeah. are also Americans that, that read all sorts of extremist channels. I've heard an American tell me... Um, that the Russian government is justified to be in Ukraine because Ukrainians are all Nazis, oh. which is totally ridiculous. And those are oh. Americans who live in California. They're citizens. They were born yeah. and raised here. So for me, the fact that we have those narratives and they pick up in our community is really, really dangerous and really, really horrifying. And when people ask me, okay, how do we fight this? Sure, multi-layered approach. I can give you the sophisticated answers. I mean, we have to patrol our our um, platforms, social media platforms. We have to um, introduce some regulation for those platforms. What Facebook and Twitter are doing with taking down accounts is very important, and they should continue to do it. It propose some sort of framework that could be applied across all social media. Great. Sure. But also, we have to educate our own people. Like, you can't tell me that someone that looks at one particular website that is not even 
reputable and that website says something about Ukrainians being Nazis and that person reads it and they start believing it and that's the official theory that they subscribe to. To me, that's, we have to teach them, we have to teach Americans about what is reputable media, what are reputable sources, what sources can you trust and not trust. And sure. that, that for me is dangerous. So that's on the strategic messaging and disinformation side. On the cyber side, the Russians, we have known them and categorized them as one of the most sophisticated adversaries and the one of the countries with the most sophisticated cyber capabilities. Um, they have been behind some really large-scale cyber operations against the U.S. The Colonial hack, um, the SolarWinds hack, um, and others uh, related to these and others that we have heard of. They're pretty significant campaigns, They've but on the other hand, we've seen what's happened in Ukraine, and there are kind of a lot of analysis on this, but um, I would say the general consensus is that we haven't seen yet the type of cyber war that we expected from the Russians to launch okay. in Ukraine. Um, I would say that, yeah, I would have expected there to be more disruption in cyberspace from the Russians until now in the, in the war in Ukraine. Sure. But we have, but there are so many foreign foreign actors that have helped the Ukrainians, and Ukrainians themselves have been fighting with the Russians since at least 2014 and the annexation of Crimea. We just also stopped paying attention and we are treating the war as if it started in February of 2022. But for sure. the Ukrainians, it hasn't stopped since 2014. Okay. So I think they were prepared to face a lot of what came at their networks since February of 2014. And the international community has been providing substantial assistance, like Amazon with the data centers outside of the country, um, yeah. Microsoft, um, Starlink. All of these are really, really helpful technologies that, that the Ukrainian government is still using and will continue to use to defend its networks against Russia's aggression. So I think on that front, I still find them definitely adversaries that we shouldn't underestimate. I also think... Every network and every country has a lot of organizations with a lot of vulnerabilities. And I, I don't dare say that they're not formidable adversaries because it takes one supply chain attack to get to another, another organization, leak information that's sensitive or classified. Um, I think, um, yeah, I don't dare say that, they are, that we have overestimated them because oh, and sure. we discussed this before the recording. We don't know the full scale of their capabilities. It's not, they're not yeah. as disclosed as intercontinental ballistic missiles in the US and Russia. Right. So you don't know what's coming and whoever tells you they know is making their best educated guess. Well, yeah, Bilyana. So this like comes back to an earlier point. And, and after this, you'll ask me the question you intended okay. to, but, but this brings me back to an earlier point. Then we'll go back to me. Um, okay. So like if I develop a new, uh, stealth bomber i want everybody to know and and i'm going to fly that thing around i'm going to fly it as fast as i can fly it i'm going to show people what it can do i'm going to distribute it online i'm going to make a huge uh i'm going to do a huge campaign on how incredible this plane is i want you know right that's how it goes down right northrop grumman uh, lockheed boeing they want everybody to know what weapons uh, they're contributing to for, you know, broadly. And if they don't uh, disclose it prior to uh, with some sexy campaign, we'll hear about it when a big target is taken down with it. Right. 
Um, so they do these big trade shows, if you will. Uh, but for cyber weapons, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like those are things that anybody has an interest in disclosing. Like, like, I don't have the knowledge you have, but like, what do you think about the different ways that we're like, is there a new way that we'll have to start to look at warfare as like just normal citizens or, you know, I mean, what do you even think about where warfare is going or could go? Mm-hmm. First on the display of capabilities and specifically new military fighter jets and all of that i completely agree chris we can also like fly them over football football games and also yes. military parades like i think <laughs> and this idea of having a military parade similar to what the russians are doing thank god we decided not to do it <laughs> because that would yep. be militarizing washington dc like i'm glad we don't have that <laughs> sure so, sure i totally agree um i don't think i think one of the advantages in cyberspace is that we have a lot of, I, I still think that we, um, even the United States is likely, likely has the, the capacity to, to have, to, to launch offensive cyber, cyber strikes. But in order for a cyber weapon to work, there must be vulnerabilities in our adversaries' networks and infrastructure. Yeah. And while you can fire a weapon, let's say you fire a, a SLBM or submarine launch ballistic missile, yeah. you can fire it against Moscow or against another really critical target. And there's very little that the adversary can do apart from trying to intercept it in order to, yeah. to stop it from blowing up whatever infrastructure you have targeted with it. In cyberspace, if you tell your adversary, hey, we have this weapon, and these are, these are the vulnerabilities that it uses, like exploits in your network, the adversary will go and patch those networks, those, yeah. those vulnerabilities. So your, your weapon will be rendered inoperable before you've okay. even launched it or before you've even uh, deployed it or, or used it. So I think it is in our advantage to be more secretive about what cyber, specifically offensive cyber capabilities we have. And also defensive too, because then on the offensive side, if there is a weapon that, let's say the Chinese or the Russians would like to deploy against us and it's using a particular vulnerability, if we have found out about that weapon, we can patch the vulnerability without telling them and this this way we can render it inoperable. But we don't want to tell them because they'll know and they'll do something else. So this whole... Idea of secrecy is actually very helpful for cyberspace. While in the other domains, we actually want to show them, hey, we have this new fighter jet here, and we have this new really cool intercontinental ballistic missile, and you can do nothing about it. So we're going to show it to you, <laughs> all sorts of media, so you know it's coming, and we can deter yeah. you by showing you that we have it. Yeah, cool. it's like a new form of cheap talk, honestly, uh, to <laughs> demonstrate weapons. Right, 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 right. Like. Like they say, like the extremist will make crazy threats uh, that they won't act upon. So it's like, you know, it's like a new, like even like Kim Jong-un showing weapons. Like, yeah, I mean, there's the practical sense of like, he's demonstrating the iterations of his build. And like, you know, even Ford Motor Company was doing that in the early 1900s, right? Like, you know, uh, whatever amazing German car company, uh, fashion, fashion has a, practice of showing the most extreme version of their clothing and then they bring a reduced version into retail right right so so when you when i asked you about cyber i was you know i was i was thinking like oh cyber should like do its runway show for me or like it'd be so cool if cyber did a flyover over the lake you know like but so 
So I get what you're saying. It's like, it's a di the, the cyber environment is structured differently than the way we're taught to think about physical war. It's just not like the way you're thinking, like what would, what would a display of cyber? I think yeah. show that we have funding for it. Sure. Universities teaching the particular cyber skills needed. And we have a cyber force. Like what are, yeah. what are the, how many people are in our cyber cyber force? How many organizations we have? Maybe that's one of the ways in which we can display potential potentially formidable cap capability. That we're building sure. capacity and we have the skills and the, the labor force to actually launch operations. Maybe that's one way to look at it. And just technological advancement in general. But yeah, that's but when, points. But okay, I have another question. Uh so like the Wall Street Journal publishes like broad signals when other governments are breaching our networks. They're pretty good at just broad, latent, like, like if you're a top manager or you're in business, the Wall Street Journal is going to give a nice cadence that at least lets you know, you know, there's some type of cyber activity taking place. This is my opinion. If you don't, if you're not in cyber, but if you're just a business person or a technologist, whatever, so they always send out notifications uh, about activity that China might be doing or activity of Russia, Saudi. They're really good about this, in my opinion. But my question for you, it was probably like two months ago. Uh, they, The Wall Street Journal pushed a notification. I don't remember how they structured the information, but it was that uh, they had... Somebody had the knowledge that China was scanning U.S. multinational companies' networks. Do you know anything about those push notifications that the Wall Street Journal is picking up or about China's capabilities to scan U.S. multinational companies' networks? So I don't, but I imagine um, what they're talking about, like, first, everyone can scan. Everyone can scan the Internet and networks of different companies. There's passive and active scanning in the reconnaissance okay. space. So depending on how advanced it is or how intrusive it is, then it may be, become problematic. But I still remember going to Black Hat this year and I sat down next to uh, someone who's a very good friend right now. And um, he was he had his phone out and he was like, Liliana, give me a second. I'm scanning the world's networks right now. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm scanning the entire internet here in different networks. Oh, jeez. My phone, yeah, yeah, look. So it's like that now. It's like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's actually, uh, I just got the new 14 uh, Pro Max or whatever. But, and I'm not going to front, I haven't been blown away by mobile device hardware in like a decade. It's like, it's been a decade since somebody got me shook. But this phone, it's got me shook. Like, this is like, um, it's a masterpiece of hardware. I can't even believe that they can... I don't, I just, it's mind boggling to me, even just the optical elements, the, the pain on, you know, the panel that's on the front of it, the, and then the fact that they have computing hardware in here, RAM, storage. This is like unbelievable. When, when I was 11, I was lucky if I could get 128 megabytes of RAM on my computer. And I'm pretty sure I needed four sticks of RAM to do this, and I had terribly shitty motherboard. And I think that this phone has 
six gig of RAM. So it has, what is that, 40 times more RAM than my first desktop computer? That's just shocking to me. Still shocks me, honestly. I have I have a big ultra-wide curve, and I always keep pretty solid computer hardware, but this shocks me. Uh, and then I just think, like, like, imagine, like, if I ran a virtual machine on this or, like, an AWS environment on this would be reasonable compared to, like, an iPhone 10 or 11. I just think about, like, what where mobility is going, and I think people have somewhat kind of forgotten because they just see the software looks the same but they forget there's you know other ways to connect to hardware but okay so the question that you had for me was how did what preceded us getting to the this conversation why are you interested in these topics <laughs> like what fired you up and got you to here yeah okay all right i'll try to keep this brief because <laughs> this is the this is a rant, Billiana Lily. All right. No, and and Chris and Chris Sweat. Okay. All right. We're both ranting. Okay. Well, now it's re- well. It's cool to, that you asked this question and that we we can blend it into this level of discourse. But, uh, so I guess like um, I always like had like a dysfunctional obsession with computers, and uh particularly like um, any racing game. So like computers and like racing. So when broadband came out, they had these racing simulators in the early 2000s that were actually really sophisticated. Uh, you know, say you have a car, like a very complex physics model, interactions between the rubber and the road, like a dynamic adjustment of temperature on the cement which affects, you know, where you're going to get traction. And then, you know, still I had to know, like I had to memorize. I probably have like 70 tracks that people know around the globe, big ones, like very, you know, like Spa Frankerchamps or Imola or uh, Le Mans in France. Or, you know, I like I know those tracks turn by turn. Okay. I learned them when I was young. There's many others, right? So, so I would play these games online, which would force me to like upgrade my computer. And, you know, I had to get like a steering wheel, a clutch, uh, gear shifter. So I'm like driving sports cars in the computer when I'm like before I've ever driven a car. Okay. And I'm not paying attention in school because school's set up in a way that is like, I was having a hard time like, checking into school my parents didn't have a academic background you know so school was like it was confusing I felt detached there it was hard for me to hook in so instead I was like like trying to get my network my local area network improved I I was uh you know we still spun up like pretty advanced server infrastructure to run these simulators because it was only real people so I was not running against computer systems. I was only running against real people. People I was running against were like in their 20s or 30s. You know, I was 11, 12, 13. Uh, and so like in the simulator, you know, there's like uh, the reality of like like the construction of a corner, for example. Like you have your break point, which you still need phys- physical cues for that in the simulator. 
So like the 200 meter mark, I know that I'm going to press the brake 70%, that I'm going to hit the clutch, shift down, hit the clutch, shift down, come off the brakes, shift down, shift down. You see what I'm saying? Then I'm going to turn in, okay? Then I'm going to find the apex of the corner. I'm going to nail it. I'm going to be back on the throttle. I'm going to exit the corner, turn out, and I'm going to accelerate, shift up, 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 up. And I'm going to repeat that. And so I did that for like a million miles, literally. Okay, it's ridiculous. Um, and there were like various themes or like times I would check in and out of that across, I don't know, like probably about 18 years. Uh, and what it what it was doing, um, you know, so I didn't go to school till I went to the community college uh, in 2020 in January. So that was the first time I stepped into a classroom, but my whole corporate career, you know, I like after doing these simulators, like in high school, I'm like, oh, well, I guess I want to sell computers, but I hate the way retail thinks about computers. I hate the way my colleagues think about computers. I'm like, I didn't even know there were this types of people working on computers. Like, I was really mad about it. This realization, I don't know. So I stayed mad about it for like my twenties and in my mid twenties, you know, because I, you know, I worked for some telecom companies, so I was still doing the networking thing, and I was just frustrated with the thinking. And then I went over and played with some Bay Area tech joints. And so by the time I was like 26 or 27, 2015, I was like, yo, I can't handle this anymore. There's something about the computer system and the kind of scale and the architecture and the size of it that... I know I could get my head around if I just could get into the world in the right place or whatever. So I was like, all right, look, um, I have these theories. You know, this is a high school, like barely graduated high school guy that has a big voice and a strong opinion. Like that was the same, right? But I was like, all right, I want to test uh, the way that all these boxes, this kind of like structure and organization appears in my mind. So it's like, I'm going to take organization theory and some of the thoughts that come out of that. And I'm going to take software architecture and I'm going to try to challenge the way that they fit together inside of these like corporate environments. And that is where I'm going to make arguments for automation, like bringing more automation into these like corporate environments. And I was like, you know, that's interesting. And, um, and I started to play with like even bigger software and, you know, there was even a stint, uh, you know, where I, it was like, it was like, I was exposed to the networks, then as sophisticated as they could be, then the infrastructure and its whole kind of, uh, explosion into the cloud. Right. Uh, all I went to data centers, you know, I even racked and stacked some of my own shit. And then I wanted to just, I wanted to see like, how is how are people engaging with these systems? Why are people preventing me from bringing more automation into the loop? What is that, right? <clears throat> so so basically, uh, there has always been this weird connection between like physical reality and computers for me. And, but I, but I grew up, uh, Everyone grew up talking politics at home. Like, like you could talk politics and religion. There were never rules against that. So my, like, my other interest 
that kind of was in tandem, I just didn't have any practical experience with was politics. So at some point, you know, a year and a half ago, I transferred to the University of Colorado. I changed my major to political science. I can't study computer science. I, I've done too much practical stuff. I can't study engineering. The engineers define requirements, right? I need to be able to think beyond that. And then I can have somebody help me define requirements, right? But political science, like for me, has a lot more room for creative thinking. And, and it lacks in a lot of ways, thank God for you, but it definitely lacks like technology minded people. Uh, but, but I think the technology is becoming more important, especially as your research shows and as your practice shows. Uh, so that, that's how I got here, Billionas. Now, now at this point, uh, the more I study, the faster I'm kind of like rationalizing things that I couldn't communicate about, you know, cause I got into the academic world later. Uh, and now it's just kind of pulling me through. Now I'm back, uh, doing stuff that's software related, uh, and studying at the same time. I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, and so my hope in the future at some point is that I'll figure out similar to you, how to cross the technology and the politics. Uh, and also just like the computers, like I wasn't satiated by the little desktop computer and the little gaming stuff that I was doing. I needed to, uh, work with bigger computer systems. Uh, so it's the same with politics, like, you know, the international, uh, perspective, uh, yeah, you know, like I can see the technology inside of the corporation. So like one of the theses that I've toyed around with with some professors, it's not perfectly structured this way. But one thing I want to do is like uh, I wrote this research proposal on uh, it's called. Hold on, because this is probably something that I'll try to make some contributions in in the way that you made your contributions on Russia. So the proposal I put together, and I'll structure this different, I'm learning, right? But it was called, um, it was called Artificial Intelligence, the Future of Precision and Repression Technology, and then Artificial Intelligence Impact on the Structure and Organization of Firms, Governments, and Societies. And there's a lot there, right? Like that scope is way too broad, but that, that kind of interaction between like structure, organization, software, government, corporations, all that, like, it just, I don't know. So here we are. This is why we're talking. The reason why I went to Oxford to study Russian foreign policy and the economies of transition was because I was at a place where I knew I wanted to articulate a lot of ideas, but I didn't have the language and I, mm. and I, which, uh, briefly switched focus because when you were talking about the fact that you're learning now and you, you're learning the vocabulary to articulate yourself, there was a book that I sat down and I read. And, and because of that book, I decided to, to study Russian foreign policy because the lady just described the culture and the rationale behind foreign policy activities in a way that was exactly what I was thinking. But she put it in foreign oh. policy. And I remember okay. sitting on the Geneva Lake and reading that book and thinking, oh my God, I love this. <laughs> And sure. I think, yeah, the lady was Anna Politkovskaya. 
And I just Googled okay. her. She was a Russian journalist and a writer. She was, I believe, killed by Putin um, a few years ago. Jeez. She was shot dead mm. in the elevator of her apartment block in central Moscow. Yes, she was covering, Jeez. I think, uh, the Chechen war and a few other other issues. But like her writing was what what basically inspired me to go and specifically focus on um, Central and Eastern Europe and Russia in my foreign policy um, foreign policy studies. So the fact that you're reading right now and identifying the area in which you want, on which you want to focus is awesome. And I have one follow-up question. Which yeah. is your favorite sports car? Um, well, it's, you know, it's the Germans for the cars and the Italians for the suits, right? I, I mean, what? anybody who says otherwise doesn't drive and doesn't wear suits, but uh, not straight up. But if I have to go like production sports cars, uh, I would say like uh, the Porsche uh, GT3 and like whatever all wheel drive turbo version of that. Are you familiar? I'm familiar with some, yeah, Porsche is not my favorite, but I'll I'll let you pass. (laughs) Okay, but what what is your favorite? I, um, I really like, so from, for like the, the, Cheaper versions, I really like Ford Mustangs for some okay. reason. Like I just, I love them. And the Shelby version is just amazing. It makes me turn my head around. But for yeah. having one of those aggressive cars, it looks a little weird. So okay. um, another car I really like is uh, the BMW, the sports versions as well. They drive really yeah. well. So that's the German car that I would like. Yeah. That either. <laughs> we'll see. Okay. Okay, maybe you'll have one of those next year when you guys start demonstrating the weapons publicly. That's when you know people are making money. <laughs> okay. Um, which, by the way, like, uh, I don't drive in Chicago. So, like, this is the first time, like, it just makes no sense. Uh, but I have multiple roads in Boulder that I, like, I mean, there's some great, like, there's this one road that is about... 13 miles it goes to a reservoir but it, the climb is probably like 14 or 1500 feet but there is a lookout where you can see all of boulder county it's very cool if you ever if you ever get to boulder tell me i'll meet you there yeah, yeah. but um but anyway so uh i know that we're gonna wrap here in a second biliana but like a, another question for you i guess is like so, like, what what are you working on? Uh, like, what what's kind of informed the way that you're thinking about your career? Because um, I mean, you seem to like have like a practice that you're forming, but but then also still close to the kind of research, the academic elements. I might be interpreting that incorrectly, but but if you have anything that you can share about what's next for you or what's important, absolutely. So I was, uh, I haven't uh, publicly announced it yet, but I think I can talk about this um, at this point. The Warsaw Security Forum organizers invited me to lead the resilience track of the forum. And for those that don't know, the Warsaw Security Forum takes place every year in October in Warsaw, Poland. And over 770 prime ministers and foreign ministers of EU and NATO countries gather there. And they discuss the most important um, foreign policy and defense topics of the day. Like last year, um, this year, actually in October, we had the topic was, of course, Ukraine and Russia. And how do we make sure that Ukraine wins the war? And sure. what else Ukraine needs to to ensure that, that Russia gets out of Ukrainian territory? 
uh, Zelensky's wife was there, Olena Zelenska. She gave us, she gave a talk there and received an award. We also had two Nobel Prize laureates that were at the conference, and uh, it was, it was a really um, very important event. A lot of discussions. Um, we covered a lot of discussions about uh, Ukraine and, and disinformation and cyber operations on, on, on some of the in some of the classified or how do you call it like Chatham House rules rules sure. rooms. We had that as well. So for next year, so far the conference or the forum has been focused primarily on defense and foreign policy. But in they did have a few panels on cybersecurity, but they weren't. They weren't very technical or focused specifically on cybersecurity. Cyber was one of the topics. So for next year and hopefully going forward, the founders would like to have one third of the conference be focused on cyber on resilience in cyberspace. Okay. And uh, we have two other tracks: just the defense and foreign policy, and those are led by General uh, Petraeus, who was the the founder. Well, he was. The director of the CIA, not the founder, sure. the director of the CIA. We had General Ben Hodges. We have General Ben Hodges also involved in one of the tracks. Um, okay. The organizers also include um, Baroness um, Catherine Ashton, who is also very well known. Uh, she was the EU's chief of foreign policy. We have Katarzyna okay. Pisarska, who is one of the founders of the conference also. And then I will lead the third track with a former minister of Poland who will focus on energy security. And I will focus specifically on cybersecurity, and we're going to form a small committee that will come up with practical recommendations on how to enhance the resilience in cyberspace of Eastern and Central Europe that will benefit the entire NATO alliance and the EU in the event we have another war with Russia. And God forbid, yeah. this is actually against a NATO or, or a EU member state. So sure. hopefully um, this will be, we're forming right now the, the group that will come up with those recommendations and I'll be working closely with the entire water security Forum organizational committee to come up with those Jeez. decisions and then to structure next year's um, basically forum. So I'm excited about that. It's basically a way for me to, to try to think creatively, as you mentioned, Chris, hopefully inform yeah. you have some room for creativity and think about, okay, what else do we need to make sure that we can defend ourselves against cyber operations and strategic messaging campaigns or disinformation campaigns. So we'll tackle both. So that's one yeah, I'm excited about. And then there are a few other ideas and um, consulting on cybersecurity continues for me. I have a third book idea, and I'm uh, right now working on the structure for the particular um, idea. It's going to be creative. It, it's going to be a little bit outside of the box as well, hopefully for growth okay. analysis, not just for decision makers. And it will again touch upon espionage, cybersecurity, and Russia and China this time. Wow. Okay. And the council or this forum, the Warsaw Security Forum, just, right. just for just for people that don't know that that's like if, uh, you know, I was putting my art at the Guggenheim, like that, that's the elite organization. No, I mean, Biliana, you're humble about it. Okay. But this is like where we work on coordinating uh, in the West, right? So like, you're going to be informing the way that uh, heads of state or top decision makers in different bureaucratic parts of government might look at their strategy or planning and uh, in cyber security risk, those kinds of areas. That's kind of the gist, right? That's right. Yeah. The, yeah. That's yeah. So I know you can be humble, 
but at the, but but I just want to make sure everyone knows like that's very cool that your all these things we're talking about are you know have led to you contributing to this conversation at the level that you are. It's Thank amazing. You. Of course. Uh, okay. Well, is there anything else that you want to share in the last few minutes? And also, if people want to connect with you or uh, follow your content, like where are the best places? So um, to connect with me, Twitter, I, I created finally an account on Mastodon. I don't know if I'm going to talk. <laughs> okay. Me either. Media, yeah, too many social media platforms. I don't have time to cover them all. But I would say I'm most active on Twitter, and it's, again, Biliana Lily, and then basically my first and last name. LinkedIn as well. I'm happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. My name is, again, Biliana Lily there. Those are, I would say, the two platforms where you can follow what I do. And uh, for anyone that, that is listening and watching us, if you're wondering whether to get into cybersecurity, please consider it because we need more people to get involved. We need more creative thinkers. It doesn't matter where your, your computationally savvy or not. You can learn the skills. You really can. And there are so many jobs and so many opportunities in cybersecurity that I, I hope that this inspires you. And if I can help in any way to mentor people or talk to them about programs, I guess, Chris, you can probably even tell them about all the Colorado, other, other state yeah. programs that they have. I can talk about uh, PhDs and master's programs in the States and abroad, like reach out. I'm happy to help. And I hope that more and more people join us. Amazing. All right. Uh, thank you, Biliana. Thank you so much for having me.